don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, Cairo and the architecture of informality with best striker and Omar Nagati. Hello everyone, today my guests are Omar Nagati and Best Striker, who are uh, architects and urban planners and the founder of Cluster in uh, Cairo. And it is the first, um, the first conversation we will have in, uh, in Cairo, so uh, you get to introduce us to the, to the city. Uh, hello Omar, hello Best. Hello. Hi. Um, so we today we are going to talk about one aspect of your work, which consists in a research in the informality uh, of uh, of the city of Cairo, and something I, I got to experience myself uh, since I arrived here, and I'm, I've been in completely mesmerized with what I with what I've been seeing. Uh, but maybe before we jump uh, we jump into the topic, could you could you tell us in a few minutes what? Um, what you're doing at Cluster on a, on a daily basis? Please go ahead. <laughs> Beth? Okay, um, we undertake four kinds of activities here at Cluster, so we're largely a team of architects, um, but we do both design work as well as public programs, research and trainings. So that's an overview of the kinds of activities that we do. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're an independent research platform. Um, you know, it was established shortly after the evolution as an interdisciplinary uh, space, looking at urban issues, particularly related to public space. Uh, of course, that, you know, has to be understood in the context of what happened, the aftermath of the revolution and the sort of... Uh, condition of state being vulnerable and weak and people taking the initiative and reclaiming the city to use the cliche and doing things that were not necessarily imagined before. So that was the, the beginning of our work, to start to understand and map and identify and document what's happening on the urban, the urban scene in context of the political transformation. So this is sort of what we intended to do initially and as that said, so we, we do mapping and research, that's one set of activities. We have a design component in our work, and we do programming such as events and conferences and symposium, also websites, we're going to talk about it, and have a library project, and then we do training and also a little collaboration with universities. And, and um, yeah, I mean, since we're going to talk mostly about the research part of Cluster, maybe you can tell us very briefly about those uh, those two projects you've been uh, you've been doing in the passageways of, of uh, downtown Cairo. Uh, I think it's a pretty recent recent rehabilitation of, of pass passages, right? Mm. Um, the, one of the projects you're talking about, the Cairo Downtown Passages project, so it started off as a research project, and I'll let Omar talk a little bit more about the, the background to the research, and then it developed, we developed a workshop uh, based on the research, which was we selected two of the passageways, the Kodak Passage and the Phillips Passage, uh, as sites for redesign, um, in part because of their relation to other basically independent arts organizations in downtown, the proximity to them. So they're around the corner from us at Cluster, just down the street from Cimatech, which is an independent film center that we're actually also renovating. It's one of the design projects we're working on, as well as CIC is on the other side of the passages, which is the Contemporary Image Collective. So um, we had looked at, in this northern part of downtown, how can we create a sort of concentration of arts and call attention to it, because most of these art spaces are up a few floors, so you wouldn't know about mm. them if you're on the ground level. So one of the things that was interesting about these passages in particular was that from the ground level you can start to um, create a sort of hub for art and culture. Uh, we had previously done a project in the Kodak Passage where we had um, done an exhibition with the artist Hassan Khan. Uh, we had renovated four spaces along the passageway, and this was in collaboration with DCAF, the Downtown Contemporary Arts Festival, 
also thinking about some of these questions and um, the way that we could bring the gallery space into contact with the street. So as a passageway that you're able to have this procession of art spaces. So with the workshop, we, we wanted to take some of those ideas a step further and also look at how can we do an intervention in the public space itself of the passageway. Um, so we worked with Danish um, funders, basically, uh, agencies that were interested in an Egyptian-Danish dialogue. We brought together Danish and Egyptian artists and architects uh, to look at the question of how can we revitalize these two passageways. And part of Cluster's role was to do outreach in the neighborhood to talk to all of the different stakeholders along the passages and to understand what their needs were in relation to this public spaces, create a design brief. And then our job was to take the concepts that were developed in the workshop and um, we actually, over the course of, I guess it was eight to ten months, did the redesign itself sought out the permits and, and implemented the project which just opened in mid-January. So this has been, it's a sort of a long-term uh, process from research to workshop to the implementation itself. So it's sort of incorporating all the different kinds of, of work that we do here at Cluster. And I'll let Omar talk a little bit more about the background for the, for the passageway research. Yeah, well, the, you know, just to go even back further, the, the passageway as a concept or as sort of a research topic started out also around 2010 11. Uh, and it was in part interest in this kind of in between space or the condition of in betweenness uh, in downtown but in general. Uh, this intermediate zone, not only physical mediation or not as a physical container, but also as a, as a mediation between the public and private or the former and informal, and as a space of liminality, as a transitional space between two urban political orders, one that has collapsed and one that has become. So in that sense, this is a, it's a, it's a really rich metaphor. <coughs> so we identified, we started by a student project initially to look at downtown and try to identify all these kind of not only formal passage, like not only the, some of our design had been designed as a sort of 19th century arcade consumer space, but many of them are just gaps between buildings and leftover space and side streets and so on and so forth. So we embarked on a process of trying to map all these spaces and try to look in them uh, as opportunities, collectively as a network, opportunity to reimagine downtown from inside out, from the back alley, not from the front street, because many of them actually, because they're sort of a little bit concealed or less visible, so the sense of accommodation and tolerance between seemingly contradictory activities like the bar and the, the mosque and the restaurants and the cafe. So we, we started by mapping this, and then over the course of the next year or two, we started to do more work beyond the student work to do to, to, to more professional kind of identification and analysis and visualization uh, in different phases, looking at different samples here and they're looking at the tangible and the intangible dimension. And as Beth said, by, the, by 2014 we uh, thought that maybe this is a point we tried to test our hypothesis of, you know, passageways as a framework for development and, and also the role of art as urban catalyst, something that we both were very interested in. Mm -hmm. So we decided to uh, to put on hold a little bit the mapping documentation and to, to start with a couple of pilots. So the Hassan Khan Shawood one pilot and then the, the two passageways in Kodak and Phillips is another pilot. And the idea was to, to really, uh, as I said, put to test some of these ideas, like how can in this, this passageway in between becomes a, a space of mediation between different stakeholders. So in this particular example, from day one, we started by talking to street, to, to shop owners, to residents, to developers, to civil society groups, to authorities, and try to see what are the things that are interested, what are their aspirations and needs, but also what are their concerns, what we'd like to see and not, not to see. And try to define a little bit of a middle ground, using this intermediate space physically as sociopolitically as a middle ground, a common ground. Um, and using design tools, physical, this is like the tools that we have. So there are benches, there are light fixtures, there are tiles, there are plants. So how can these physical elements, streetscapes basically, become a tool to negotiate a middle ground between the maximal and the minimal requirement of each body? 
So this is basically what we try to do, and and we're in the process also um, now that the construction has been completed. Is to we're, we're we're trying to build help build an institution of passageway or public space um, uh, boards or a committee, so that the residents around so the passageway is surrounded by at least three properties, and each one has their own residence boards. But the space in between is sort of left over. Somebody takes care of it. So we're trying to reverse this. Uh, uh, framework so that there will be also a management structure mm-hmm. and procedure and process and budget for the upkeep and maintenance of. So there will be a sort of a constituency for the public space, which I think to me is something new as, as well. As well. So this is also part of our interest in public space and how can we, how can design become sort of a catalyst for you know superstructural issues, you know such as socio-economic and political. It's not just. Uh, Aesthetic dimension, which is also interested in, but that's not necessarily the the, the goal that we. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're we're already very much into the this tension between uh, research, design, and governance, if mm-hmm. we may call it like that, and um, and maybe going going to this um, going to this research that you've been conducting and that that is uh, materialized in the book, uh, archiving the city in flux. Mm-hmm. Cairo's shifting urban landscape since the January 25th revolution. Um, maybe I could ask you uh, to drive us through this research and maybe the, the, the various informal modification of uh, the city and, and public space post-revolution that, uh, that will later lead us to talk about maybe the role of designer in that, but maybe as a, as a first step to describe all those changes and all those ele- all those elements, those objects you you've been descri- you've been describing um, in this research. I mean, the street vendors, uh, the the highway uh, 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 little plugging, and and um, all those elements. Could could you drive us through that? Okay. Well, I mean, as 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 I mentioned before, this is sort of a very peculiar condition that happened. I mean, we kind of recognized after the revolution where the state, I wouldn't say the state was absent, it says never absent, but it's weak and vulnerable and soft. The security was for several months almost nowhere to see. Maybe they were seen, but they were invisible, they're not participating. So that left the public <coughs> space uh, open to all sorts of things to happen. And, and this also was coupled by a sense of empowerment on behalf of individuals, the community after revolution, it was like, you know, they toppled one regime after the other and then they felt that it's, nobody can stop it. So it started to claim the streets in the city and we have all these initiatives of people, you know, painting their pavements, uh, painting their houses, collecting garbage, all these kind of things. Uh, so there was a lot of, quote-unquote, developmental micro-projects uh, as well as security issues. So what we what we <coughs> recognize that this moment is very ephemeral, <coughs> it's trans- transitory, and we thought, and I think that's have proved to be true, that eventually the law and order will be restored, mm-hmm. and many of these practices on the ground that were only possible because of this political vacuum uh, will will remain there for for only that much time, and we need to quickly archive it and document it before it <coughs> disappears. That was the premise, yeah, and the hypothesis. <coughs> so hence the city of flux. So Beth and I we started to, and our team, we started to say, okay, how can we quickly, but also methodically, capture this feeling moment? So we looked at a range of activities, ranging from the micro-scale of street vendors. We can talk more in depth about street vendors and the significance of that, because they're really, you know, their position and the interface mm-hmm. between public and private. It's not just a street yeah. vendor per se, yeah. We, we definitely have time for that, so... Okay. Uh, and then, uh, from that micro-scale on, you know, one square meter on the sidewalk, what it means in terms of, you know, underlying structure and mechanism and organizational skills and all the kind of things and spatial politics, uh, all the way to the macro-scale or the city-scale, uh, city infrastructure, such as you refer to the highway, the highway or the ring roads. It was built toward the late 90s, 90s early 2000s, to limit the city uh, and contain further uh, informal development of agricultural land, but it was not intended to give access, to lend access to communities on both sides. So, you know, as, as, as clear in the document, many of these communities 
you know, they, they can see the high, they can touch it from the balcony, but they don't have access. So when the revolution happened, and this, this condition was conducive for many of them to start to develop <coughs> connections and access points to the to this city infrastructure, which is basically a relation to the state, you know, in a formal way. So redefining their citizenship toward the state by using physical implements, such as staircases and ramps and so on. So, so one of the big, I would say dramatic, without being any dramatic example, is the highway exit that one particular community, not the only one, but the most kind of organized one, built two on and off ramps, completely on their own, mobilizing, you know, material and fund and know-how and technical skills and so on and so forth, and constructed in three months in a very low budget. And we documented that, we interviewed the community leader, we also have, you know, they showed us some of the video, the condition they did so that they they can sort of invite the authority to come and inaugurate so that to be formalized, they formal act. So these are some of, this is sort of the overall uh, scope of this uh, of this document. Of course, what we have in this document is only a sample of a larger database that we have accumulated. And we feel very lucky because we really had the opportunity to to quickly uh, build this uh, visual and, and also interviews and video database. Uh, so now we have really a, a good record of what happened the two years after the revolution. Because now we're in different course condition and things are happening in different ways. So now it's, it's good, it's a moment of reflection. So how can we come to terms and make sense of this informal practice in a moment where the state is coming back and restoring its order and its presence and almost cleaning up and sanitizing and downtown as you've seen. So to us it's a good, um, I would say, record, but also it's a good testimony and it's open to not only us, for other you know, urbanists and intellectuals and observers to look at it and make sense out of it. So it is a material that's out there to, for people to... But maybe they can talk more about the methodology, about like what kind of the different... Tools? Yeah, the tools that we... I mean, I, I don't know, without looking at it, how useful this will be, but, I mean, some of what we did was, um, and you can see it in this book, went out with uh, our team with cameras, basically, and GPS, and one of the things we did was record along the ring road, um, so that we could sort of get a record and we would do this periodically so over time to see how things were changing in terms of things that you would see crop up along the road whether it's tea stands or you know all this informal activity people doing fixing cars like the, the just this type of stuff that you see along along the ring road we also did um, a lot of documentation Omar can talk more about the street vendor documentation downtown a lot of it using time lapse uh, photography so that we could record especially over the course of the day you'll see you know people come unfold these informal devices that they'd created to do their sales on the street also as time progressed I mean after the first year I would say and as the police started to come back they would also need to quickly move from where they were they would very quickly relocate so this is all um, material that we've been documenting and then when the police just this year were, or I guess it was to the end of 2014, successfully sort of evicted the street vendors from the street and they relocated them to Turgamon, which is a bus station nearby. We've also been going there, mapping the sort of Turgamon station, trying to understand um, what's been happening there in terms of where, where are the street vendors coming from, how has their selling changed, how have they um, sort of re-engineered some of the designs that have been given to them by the government that they obviously are not satisfied with, and also continuing to think about what are ways that um, the street vendors might be able to exist, sort of coexist on the streets of downtown, because I think from our perspective it was never really realistic that they were going to be fully... Um, Relocated. I mean, we had witnessed so many failed attempts over these past couple of years, so we've also been working on, you know, what might be some design solutions to mediate between the informal street selling and the sort of the shop owner's concerns and looking at also, you know, who are the other users of the street and the sidewalk, the pedestrians, the car drivers. And so this is also another um, sort of front that we're working on as the design front, as well as looking somewhat at policy. So, mm-hmm. Well, that, that drives me to a question that I have and that 
I'm sure none of us really have a, a finalized answer to it, but um, I guess the way the way I could ask it is, uh, what is it that design or designers have that this informality lack of? Because somehow we are, uh, I mean, since Rudowski in the 60s, we look at those architects without uh, architecture without architects, and and we are we are quite fascinated by by them, but. And somehow we want to, as, as designers, as architects, we want to jump back into this into this process and uh, and to be part of the things that are that are fascinating us. But what is it that we have that could possibly that informality could possibly need from us somehow? It's like I think it's a it's an ongoing question in in, a, in the architectural debate. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a big question. I think, you know, first of all, I think we need to recognize that, you know, when uh, Rudovsky or other people were writing in the 60s, they were referring to vernacular architecture in a sort of pseudo-romanticized version of... Now we're talking about completely different condition. You need to, you know, read, you know, the latest Beyond Habitat report about slums and this, and to see, like, in Cairo, for example, I mean, they're not slums, but the informal development in Cairo constitutes almost 70% of the city. So this is not really a marginal phenomena of local community that we kind of discovered like Hassan Fathi did in the mid-century. So now we're talking about mainstream and a main motor of urbanization. So the question is not how can informality learn from architects. I think the question also could be posed or framed, how can architects learn from informality? Because unless we we take that process seriously and critically on its own terms, we were risking marginalizing ourselves. So we need to, re- to redefine our own practice and our own position vis-a-vis this incredible uh, capacity and resources that these communities have. So that takes us back to what, what was the relevance of the revolution in Egypt. It's really opened up that question because the revolution meant really, we, we did a lot of mapping of where the marshes came, where the people came to participate in the revolution. Of course, there's the, the early moment was, of course, was the middle class, globally connected Facebookers who took to see the Tahrir. But after that, it was really the urban poor, the masses who came from the margin, from the margin around the city to hit the center, both geographically and socially. So that means that the question of informality here is at the center of the revolution. It's an urban revolution. So to, to go back to your question like more, more directly, I think there are a couple of things that we can can learn from informality and, and we can also contribute to it. I think number one is, and that's, you know, was evident in a number, number of projects we did, one of them was Ardillewa, uh, where the community actually took the initiative and had a vision of what to do and then they came to the architects or us for technical support. So the first thing that they, we can lend them support in terms of to translate their vision, but the vision is theirs, not ours. It's a very different participatory model. It's not like we have a design and go bring a model and say, give us feedback. No, they had a vision. They wanted a park. They knew exactly what they want programmatically. Schools, hospitals, sports facilities, and this and that. And they want us to translate that into a blueprint. So that's, that's something we can have. A particular project on a large scale, beyond the little you know, street vendor kiosk. So there is also there is planning requirement. There is you know, codes. So that's the second thing that they also they need from us is interface with authorities, because we could also help them to legitimize or legitimate their claims. Because it's one thing to talk to the authorities, said you know we don't want to have your project, we want something else. It's a different thing to go to the authority and have we don't want this, we want that, and that alternative is equally valid according to codes and principles and so on. So that's the second thing. The third thing that I think is very important, and I think that something gets a little bit overlooked, is that because there is really a fine line between answering to informal communities and romanticizing them as alternative. Because you know you can't really do away with the state and the state role, because otherwise you fall into this kind of neoliberal, you know, sort of paradigm in which you know it's all about private initiatives and we don't need the state. And we're, we're critical of that. But there is also an important role of planners to to really go beyond the immediate need because informality is about individual initiatives. Everybody build their own house. So there is, a, there is, there is I, would, I would say there is uh, the question of the public good, 
the larger picture, whether it's on the neighborhood scale, the street scale, the neighborhood scale, on the city scale, is not really something in the picture because everybody wants to solve their own problem. That's informality. <coughs> so the architects of planners over here is to really uh, answer to the immediate needs of the community, but also address the larger planning issues. So, for example, Arden Lewa, they wanted a park, but we wanted to, to put this park in the context of the city at large, the relationship between formal and informal, the transportation issue, traffic issue, something they're not necessarily aware of, that is a highway exit on the other side, if you do this, you're going to block that. So, sometimes you're able to, you know, look at the larger picture while being involved with the community on the local level. So, I think these are different levels of engagement and interface with informality, with this um, with a symbiotic relationship between the architect and planner, technical skill, and, you know, ability to think in an abstract way and be aware of larger, you know, planning and and, and, and uh, traffic issues as well, while addressing the the local the local community. So, I mean, this is sort of more or less how I see. Um, what we're at and we're trying to do, whether we're talking about street vendors or, or the Lower Community Park, uh, or we're talking even on, in, in the case of uh, Passageway, and Beth can tell you more about how we had to negotiate almost with every single shop owner what kind of tiles, what kind of threshold, whether they accept this plant or lighting fixture. It really boils down to very, very micro-scale immediate needs and yet you have to always, as an architect, because you're aware of the larger picture and the authorities and this and that, to mediate these immediate needs with the larger claims of public goods. Because otherwise it becomes like mm-hmm. almost like a jungle, you know. Mm-hmm. Everybody takes as much as he can or she can. And then the, the question of the, the, the weak and the vulnerable get excluded. So we're not, also, we're not only advocating informality as alternative to uh, uh, the, the state. But it, it, we're, we're, we're trying to really identify what would be the, the, the balance between, you know, instead of planning from, from the top in a society that's not a very early democratization process, mm-hmm. you don't have any public hearing or due process of participation. Huh? So, uh, so you can't really say we're building here a park or uh, opening a new highway that has, hasn't been really uh, uh, reviewed by any community. So how, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a society in this stage, how can you really mediate mm-hmm. local needs with, with larger societal uh, interests and, and, and a city scale? This is sort of where we see what we're trying to do here could contribute to. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, could you maybe talk about some anecdotes with the, in the passageway where we had really kind of mm-hmm. clear examples of that? I mean, I would say in the passageway, I mean, as Omar said, sometimes it really just comes down to very mundane questions. I mean, for example, with the with the tiling that we're doing, I mean, so we, we have uh, two different conditions in Kodak and Phillips, but let's say in Phillips where it was actually a little bit unsafe, um, you know, some, when we had done the stakeholder analysis, we had brought in, for example, people from uh, anti-sexual harassment groups, and they'd said, well, this particular passageway, it's dark, pavement is uneven, it doesn't feel safe for women to enter here. So one of the things we wanted to do was to even out the pavement. There were also drainage problems. But when it came down to it, the different shop owners, as Omar said, for them, every... I'm going to say inch because I'm Amer- you know American, but they every every little bit of um, storefront that they could have was important to them. So in order to do the leveling, we had to really negotiate on the micro level in terms of how much of their storefront might have to be reduced in order for us to introduce this even paving. And it was really like a one by one sort of minute um, negotiation just to be able to achieve that one aim that we had. And at the end of the day, we were successful, but there were moments where it really didn't look like we were going to be able to undertake the whole job or there were people who didn't want to be a part of it and then once they saw it happening, they they came and they said, well, we, we actually want you to pave in front of our shop. So one of the things that was encouraging was that even though we might face resistance and some of the negotiations that once we actually took the initiative, we found that actually everybody started to jump on board and want to be part of and did sort of see the larger picture. Um, in Kodak, we had other issues. We have there are higher end um, businesses alongside Kodak, so there's law firms and real estate.
companies and and there you had different concerns um, one of the stakeholders felt that they did not want there to be benches there because they were concerned that it might devolve into a public space where people came and ate their food and smoked shisha and that wasn't what they wanted to see happen in the passage and we're trying to argue that there's a need for public space and that you know to actually also give this project a chance to see how people will use it um, before we start modifying the benches so that they're so uncomfortable that people can't sit on them or there were proposals that we instead put plants on them. Or this, these are the kinds of things that we were having to negotiate as we went. And I, I think that, um, I mean, it's been, it's been interesting for us to witness, again, just the experience of people who had been um, providing resistance coming on board and also seeing how people are using the spaces now that they've been renovated. It's been actually a real pleasure to see people come in with their laptops and sit there and do their work sitting on the benches or we've had um, people that we know say, you know, some staff from some of the nearby arts organizations say, well, they didn't have money to go out the other night so they all just went to the Kodak Passage and sat there and hung out and that's, I mean, that's nice that's been a, like sort of a bit of a success story. But. Mm -hmm. It's it's funny to hear that some people might have been worried that like benches would bring would bring uh, activities that they, they they would not they would not really want to have uh, near the building. But uh, from from what I've been seeing so far in Cairo, there's an incredible multitude of, of objects in the street, like mo movable objects. I mean, whether mm -hmm. the you know the I mean the typical plastic chairs that we mm -hmm. see we see all over the world, they're they're all in a sudden are taking over, taking over the the asphalt. I mean, so so many so many movable objects, and uh, reminds me of a conversation uh, for archipelagos that I've been having with Jean uh, Moreno and Ernesto Ernesto Rodza in, in Miami, but. Um, and in Little Haiti, where there's many of those objects as well, but I mean here even more so than than many other places. And um, some somehow the, the 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 politics and the social relationship of this um, of those objects are are interesting to look at in in the sense that they're places in the street might might very much host the social space that that seems to be. That seems to be so much more present here than anywhere else, and I mean, uh, to a point that I mean, uh, this this is ridiculous of me to emit hypothesis when I just arrived, but to a point where I'm wondering if it does not actually contribute to cont contribute to maybe a broader political involvement uh, than than when you know people are at their home and with that, mm -hmm. with their door closed and and, and yeah. they actually have to go down to the street as a, as a, at least we say in French. Uh, and um, I don't know. I don't know what you think about that. I, I don't yeah. know if it's a valid hypothesis in any way. Yeah, I have to think about that. I, I think uh, I think the sort of community presence on the street has to do with many things. You know, with climate, with you know, with many other political conditions, not just furniture. But I, I just maybe maybe that could sort of lead to a sort of something that I want to talk about, which is sort of related, uh, which is what you refer to as this kind of multitude or multiplicity of furniture and object, movable object. I think this also has to be seen in the context of a society and uh, a, a certain sociopolitical moment in which, you know, the states over the past maybe 40 years or so have been withdrawing, whether mm. uh, explicitly or implicitly, from its role. Um, so you can see that as sort of part of a new liberal kind of transformation with the state is kind of getting things privatized and but 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 what's really relevant in terms of public space is that you know when the state withdraws from its role as a provider and, and guardian and a welfare provider so on so forth, then that leaves uh, a role of intermediate groups to fill that gap, right? We call them NGOs, civil society groups. Uh, of course, if you look at informal areas where the status has been almost completely absent from providing any services, so that role was filled up by uh, NGOs, mostly religious organizations, which in a way explains why you know uh, there is a strong role of uh, uh, presence of political Islam in this area, because all the hospitals and, uh, well, and 
you know, many of the education centers and elderly were all run by charitable organizations that were mostly funded by religious organizations. So there's sort of a grassroots base. But if you look at sort of a typical street of Cairo and you see, okay, so what is the translation of this kind of, politi- you know, sort of political science hypothesis on the street? And here is why the street vendor and the sidewalk becomes relevant because once the state is withdrawn, then you leave this interface between public and private, which is very clearly demarcated in Northern Europe, for example, when everything is very regulated and maybe over-regulated. So you know exactly what is possible, what is legal, what is appropriate to do and what you're not supposed to do in public space. And there is some sort of accountability and legal ramification. If you, for example, park in the wrong spot, you get a ticket immediately. Hmm? Or, you know, if there is, you know, throw something in the street, you know, you get all this kind of so when the, when the law enforcement is weak, and sometimes it's not even enforced, then that leaves other orders to emerge, intermediate between individuals and the state. And that's to me why the, 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 the public and private realm here are so blurred, it's a gray zone. You don't really know exactly whether with people putting their chairs, as you said, on the street, is that something legal, or that's something agreed upon, or that's something by consent to the other businesses and so there's a sense of kind of a little bit of what say oh there is community out there but also it's also important to realize that when somebody claims part of the public space he actually or she is privatizing it because they're using it as business and in doing so they're excluding other people for example people who need to work on the side you know elderly people or people with special needs or if it's a male dominated coffee shop women who don't feel comfortable so it's not necessarily something that is positive to leave things and say, oh, let's leave things organic. Sometimes this kind of organic things is, you know, not necessarily progressive. So here is what I'm trying to say that, you know, whether we're talking about street vendors or informal areas, there's really a very, very delicate position that we need to take as architects and planners and researchers and artists to acknowledge the presence of these processes and try to understand the underlying structures and mechanisms without necessarily legitimizing it on its own terms and, and forget about, you know, the, as I said, I use the public good as sort of a shorthand for for larger question about like who are the other groups are not necessarily present in the street and how can we make, make this public space more diverse and inclusive and accessible and safe, as Beth said. So what we try to do in, a, in, a, in a, the passive way is try to address this. So we're looking at what's happening in the street, but also we're looking why things are not happening in the street. So we're interviewing people who are putting the chairs, sitting in the coffee shops and this, but we're also interviewing people who are not taking part of the street and say, why are you not there? Maybe it's not safe, maybe it's not accessible, maybe it's dark, maybe this and that. So it is really a, a very, very delicate question. It goes back to very fundamental enlightenment question, you know, Habermas and other people who, who wrote about the public sphere eh? and who are the different constituency and what are the different democratization process to take part of it. And I think to me the question of this, the sidewalk to me is a very interesting spatial uh, metaphor uh, 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 that, that really if you look at the sidewalk in, in Paris for example versus look at the sidewalk here you can immediately understand you know, you know, this kind of larger political question about mm-hmm. the, the relationship between the state and the individual and the intermediate zone between them. So that's why to us the question of street vendor was a very interesting entry point. Mm-hmm. It's not really only about street vendors per se but it's it's an entry point to unlock this larger question. And to what extent is, is, uh, is, uh, is uh, these processes um, uh, an answer? Is it, sort of a, is it okay to understand that in the transition, transition period? Or is it really an alternative to the state? And I think one of the things that we need to understand is like once you try to understand, like I'll give you maybe a... a a quick uh, anecdote just to, uh, to clarify that. If, you, if, you, if you're driving your car, for example, or try to park, and then you try to park something, and then somebody says, you can't park here. And you say, no, there is no, no parking sign. Why can't I park? Say, no, it's in, outside my shop. Right, so it's not just like there are two different interests, there are different frames of reference. You're invoking civic law, the public-private. Huh? You're a taxpayer. You have the right to park anywhere, this and that. And the other person is invoking neighborly rights. Right? So here we're talking, you know, apple and orange. Maybe somebody else would 
referring like religious law or Sharia law, somebody else is like gender. So we are, once this kind of normative, universal or state normative order is lifted or suspended momentarily, like what happened in the city in flux, then all these kind of emerging sub-orders and references are competing. And sometimes competing in a violent and aggressive way, not in a nice way. Sometimes the street is ruled by thugs. Or you know, parking your car turns into... Fight, like yeah, all yeah, the time yeah. down here. So, like the, the the sort of the, the daily, everyday practice, yeah, to use that, becomes really uh, a tool to measure this kind of competitive. So, to us, yeah, just to come back full circle, to us, being located in downtown is not really an accident. Of course, our work is on downtown, but also it really keeps us grounded. So, our daily journey from to the office is sort of a, is almost like a, a daily reminder that our everyday experience is really part of the research topic. So not really a research topic, it's really research about our own experience. So that's how we get in, get involved in this question like street vendor or passage road because it's part of our daily experience. We never sit and say, oh, what will be our next research topic? Let's look at this. It is really our daily experience that really informs the issue that we are concerned about, that we turn it into research or design or program. This is how kind of things... Well, and I, I suppose what you're describing also makes me think of uh, of something we have talked about with uh, Alejandro Hernandez in in Mexico City, in in how how we always speak about the public space without really wondering what is it we put behind the term yeah. of public uh, in that sentence. But uh, the <clears throat> the last thing I, I wanted to talk about with you is um, is something you've been mentioning. Uh, quite often uh, throughout this conversation, it's this activity of mapping that mm. uh, I'm very interested in. And um, I read, I read a, a quote from you, Omar, uh, in, the, in the, um, the little book, Learning from Cairo, which is a, the, the sort of a synthesis of a, of mm. a larger conference that happened, uh, was it last year? Uh, 2013. 2013, okay. Um, where where you ask, what, why do we map? And you say, mapping has always been the monopoly of the state, and so maybe we need to change the perspective of the main narrative. And it's true that it's true that mapping informality somehow has inherently some characteristics of, of, uh, of crystallizing something that doesn't mean to be crystallized, and mm-hmm. also uh, making an inventory that, that actually has a sort of... Uh, Transcendental. I mean, really mm. looking from above. Mm. I mean, that's mm. what mapping is about. That that has more to do with uh, with uh, yeah, with what we would call state activities, mm-hmm. than, than actually the sort of imminence of, of those of that what is being described. So uh, I was very curious to hear both of you about about this cartographic activity. Do you want to start on this path? Why don't you respond to the quote you made, <laughs> and then I can talk about quit. All right, so I think on a conceptual level, mapping is definitely something, it has to do with power relationships, sort of the, the a priori position outside and all this kind of Foucaultian kind of idea and Cartesian moment, all this kind of thing. But on a sort of practical level, mapping, there, there, is, there is always a risk in mapping because mapping means that you're kind of freezing things in a moment, freezing a fluid moment. So what we did in our capacity of flux, there was a, it's a moment of flux, constant change. And you take a snapshot of a, of a picture, for example, or you draw a sketch, which is a moment in time, right? So it really cuts out all this kind of vibrant process of change. So that's that's one disadvantage. The other major, to me, risk in doing mapping um, is that sometimes you render visible activities that are being protected by virtue of being invisible. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in formal areas, people in informal areas, people, I'm sorry, like communities, certain informal areas, you know, they have the local knowledge. They know the neighborhoods. They know where the mosque is. They know where the bakery store is. They don't, they don't need a map, right? And sometimes there is sort of being, um, in a way, outside or below the radar, protects them sometimes. So sometimes you think by mapping them, you're helping, but sometimes you're actually destroying certain structure because that, that opens up the possibility for larger forces, outside forces, whether state forces or capitalist forces, 
to identify something and that you can talk about mm -hmm. the heritage and gentrification concerns in other places. So sometimes you are actually your work is used as a tool for other purposes, unintentionally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So these are all other concerns. However, I think it's also a bit yeah, naive or simplistic to say, so the best thing is to stay idle and leave things as they are. No, I think the, the question is always something, you know, it's not a black and white. You need to critically engage. And, and having this converse, conversation, you're aware of the risks and disadvantages and, and drawbacks. So you're, you're still active, you're not sort of sitting idle, you're active, but active in a critical way. So we are, we are as a group, you know, this, this is true for mapping, but it's also true for many other things we're doing downtown. So we, we, we take the position of critical engagement as opposed to boycotting or not engaging and say, this is, you know, we don't talk with the state, they're evil. We don't talk to the private sector, they're evil. We don't talk to seed vendors, otherwise. No, we, we, we're interested in engaging every party and understand their position and understand what is critical about this position. And our own position is clear to us. So mapping is just a case in, in point, Yanni. Mapping is a tool. It's not a goal. In the, in the same way as writing an essay. Okay, textualization, oral history is equally freezing moment in time. It's equally problematic if you look at it from the same way, right? So, so any, any act of documentation or textualization or spatialization is in itself problematic because it is really anti-process, if you want mm -hmm. to use journalism. However, I think we, we think uh, in a moment, the two years after evolution, when things were uh, going to disappear, we proposed, and it's true that many of them have disappeared. It was really important to capture this moment, even at the risk of some of these mapping tools being criticized as, you know, there's a power relation. But at the end of the day, it's better. It's like, you know, archaeologists, you know, by unearthing some stuff, you're already kind of destroying part of it, right? So, what, so there's always this kind of dilemma, Yanni. Would you just, like, leave everything as it is or being critical as you try to do your best to preserve it? So this is some, something that we're aware of, and uh, we, we think, you know, mapping and identification, documentation, archiving is something that we uh, think would be useful also for other researchers and scholars and planners. Um, but we take it with a grain of salt. We're aware, we're aware of all the kind of problematics around it, or some of it, Yanni. And we welcome critical debate like that to, to make us even more aware. But maybe Bethy can talk about the specific of some of this... Uh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I can talk about one of the one of the projects that we've undertaken. One of our mapping projects is um, called the Cairo Urban Initiatives Platform, and it's an online system. So it's a dynamic map. So it, it is something that can be updated and so forth. And we started this in 2012, and part of it was because just this was just after the revolution. There were a lot of new initiatives that had sprung up. Um, in particular, we're looking at. Um, independent organizations who had an interest in public space but coming from different disciplines, so from art and architecture, urbanism, also media advocacy. Um, and a lot of, suddenly a lot of activity in part because there was an influx, it seemed, of foreign money and so people suddenly had the resources to um, begin activities. Also what Omar was describing earlier, that there was a sort of new sense of empowerment and freedom um, people having taken to the streets wanted to maintain their stake in the streets. But at the same time, people didn't know what each other were doing because there was so much going on and there really was no place you could go to find out about these things. So we started uh, with a series of networking meetings with um, between 30 to 35 of these organizations. Um, and the idea was to think about how can we share resources and how can we collaborate and pretty early on it became clear that we also just needed tools to um, to be able to map what was happening and um, for people to also collectively like render some of these activities visible so as cluster we um, we undertook to create this online both it's sort of a directory of organizations as well as a shared events calendar and um, 
it is meant to be mostly user generated so we created it over the series of uh, workshops where we got people's input about what they needed in particular at that time a lot of times activities would be cancelled because of violence in the streets or mm. had to be relocated or so we developed a system with these things in mind so you can actually indicate if something's been cancelled, moved and so forth and um, also giving people the ability to represent themselves and we created logins, passwords, did training sessions for everyone. We started with between 30 to 35 organizations. Now we have over 200 um, in the system. We have over 2,000 users a month. So it's, it's been a, a pretty successful project. But at the same time, there was some resistance in the beginning. People are wondering, well, why, why do you want to render these things visible? There's a certain uneasiness about it for some of the reasons that, that Omar described. And now... Um, at this moment in time, now there's some new NGO laws in effect. There's, you know, there's also that concern about how can, how can, as Omar said, the information be mis misused. In other mm -hmm. words, people are feeling vulnerable. Um, so it's it's always a risk that that you are facing when you when you undertake to to do mapping. And I think one of the other examples that Omar was referring to earlier is. Um, you know, we had met with, or I've met a number of times with George Arbid, who's based in Beirut, who had been doing mapping of um, heritage buildings in Beirut that they felt were at risk. And uh, and I know that they had some similar experiences where they, the concern once they had made this visible, their idea was we're going to try and, in a way, landmark these things, get them protected, but that same information can be used by developers or by people who you know, now have an easy way to identify the same projects for their own ends. And so, so this is a, so it's a, it's always a concern, but at the same time, um, it seems to us that it's important to undertake the, the mm -hmm. kinds of mapping projects that we have been doing. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm always glad when I, when I'm able to have a conclusion for, <laughs> for, those conversation and maybe to go back to this idea of, of what you were of the role of the designer Omar and maybe we can say the, the role of the designer the, the role of the planner the role of the architect the role of the cartographer uh, maybe the three words that I got from what you were saying so one of which being uh, explicit by you was the role of interpreter the role of interface and the role of intermediates so those ideas of always inter mm -hmm. uh, within the relation, and I, I think that's a very, uh, it's a very satisfying uh, 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 definition of the role in, in such a way that, that it's always in the middle of, of, of the flux we've been uh, describing throughout this conversation. So uh, thank you very much to both of you for your time and, uh, and for introduce, uh, introducing us uh, uh, to the politics of space of Cairo. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.